Tonight, could the Fed begin cutting interest rates later this year, or will it overshoot? You're listening to Simply Money, presented by Allworth Financial. I'm Steve Sprovac, along with Steve Ruby. But before we start, I know, Ruby, this is your favorite subject. Let's talk about how great the Bengals are. Oh, it's you know I, I talked about this a, a couple You're weeks ago. You're not a Bengals ago. fan. No, no, I, I, I'm telling you, Steve. <laughs> I talked about this a couple weeks ago. I think it was with Amy. Yeah. Um, you know, you were gallivanting around the country exactly. doing whatever you do, yeah. and and I I am a recovering Browns fan. Okay. I'm from Cleveland, born Who and raised. Did they play last week? Nobody. It doesn't matter. I don't care. You said, yeah, you're please, not going to please continue. So you're not going to get me with those anymore because I I, I have I, and and this is hard to yeah. admit, but I admitted yeah. it to listeners last time. I've given up on the Browns. Oh my goodness! Yeah, wow. You'll People be have been back. telling me my whole life they're they're a garbage franchise, and and you know the I've lived in Cincinnati since 2007, and I, I'm jumping on the bandwagon just like you. <laughs> yeah, I'm very comfortable on the bandwagon. But in all seriousness, great win. I want to acknowledge that, and, and I love these traditions of handing out game balls to local um, beverage establishments. Let's yeah, just say, go. yeah, that, that's that's really cool, and it brings a community into the picture, and I, I think it's great. Hey, but that's not what we're here for. As much as I want to talk about the Bengals. But the questions that are on the minds of economists, investors, people like you and me, um, can the Fed achieve a soft landing? Have they raised interest rates enough? All these things that you and I want to know, well, we got the guy on the line that monitors this, Allworth Chief Investment Officer, Andy Stout. Andy manages billions of dollars of investments right here in Cincinnati. And, and Andy, I want to start right off with the Fed meets next week. Um, what are you expecting? I expect the Fed to raise interest rates again, but at a slower pace. So if you remember last year, we had three or yeah, three, three quarter point or 0.75% sure. uh, consecutive rate hikes, uh, and then a half point rate hike and uh, in December. And now when we look to this February 1st meeting, what the Fed will probably do is raise rates by a quarter point. So getting back to the more normal pace of hikes. So just a quarter point as opposed to three quarters or a half point. So that's the Fed slowing down. And part of the reason is uh, they're seeing the inflationary environment improve a little bit. And they wanna see the uh, economic effects that these cuts are starting to have because they tend to affect the economy with a lag of about six to nine months. So everything the Fed's doing- That's the killer, the lag time, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, if it was real time, the Fed would have a a much easier job. Uh, But they don't know how everything is interconnected in terms of what the ripple effects might be because it's different every time. So looking at the second half of of 2023, do you think they're they're gonna pivot and and talk about decreasing rates? So that's what the, the market has priced in right now, basically a quarter point hike in February on the first uh, quarter, another quarter point hike, March 20, uh, 22nd, when they meet after that. Then uh, basically in the second half of the year, they have uh, two cuts priced in. I don't know if I'm buying that right now. Uh, I wanna see how things play out, but the Fed has been pretty uh, resilient in its language, talking about how they wanna see how things play out. They're really, really afraid of making the same mistake that the Fed made in the 1970s. Well, they, when they've, they, been con- they've been consistent though. They've been they've been very consistently saying, no, don't don't be in a rush. We don't have any plans to do that, right? Yeah, they, they certainly have. And one of the things that uh, Fed Chair Jerome Powell 
talked about last year uh, a few times was that in the 1970s, the Fed relaxed their monetary policy too soon. And that essentially led to, or at least was a big contributor to the high inflationary environment of the 1980s, the early 1980s. And Chair Powell does not want to go down as repeating that same mistake because that was probably the Fed's worst mistake ever. If this happens again on Powell's watch, there's a good chance he would go down as the worst Fed chair ever. Well, and I, I was around back, back then, and and the the big problem was the Fed, like you said, they they um, relaxed too quickly. They they didn't raise rates enough. And when uh, Paul Volcker came in, he said, "Enough's enough. We're going to get serious about this," and threw us into very intentionally two brutal back-to-back recessions. And and ultimately, that's what got a handle on uh, inflation. But it it took some major. Uh, major increases in interest rates by Volcker. You're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC. Uh, I'm Steve Sprovec, along with Steve Ruby. And if it's Monday, we're talking to Andy Stout, Chief Investment Officer of Allworth Financial. And and Andy, I, I'm getting this question all over the place. I mean, people are asking me, so I got to ask you, are we going to have a recession this year? Possibly. I mean, recession risk is high. What we like to look at is leading economic indicators, which are data points that move before the broad economy moves. Right now, Steve, we have quite a few of these leading indicators signaling an economic slowdown ahead. So, you know, we're very uh, serious in monitoring this and staying on top and make sure, you know, portfolio positioning is, is where it needs to be in, in that scenario. But I will say, you know, there are some other economists out there who believe we might be able to achieve that soft landing, which means the Fed hikes, but doesn't yeah. hike us into a recession. JP Morgan, it was kind of interesting. I was reading over the weekend, uh, a lot of their, they, they have a handful of recession models and across different markets. And, and basically what they are saying is they're seeing that recession risk this year come down. Uh, and the three primary reasons for that, at least in their eyes, is inflation is slowing, gas prices have been falling, and China's reopening. Uh, they believe those three factors are really causing risks, not necessarily to go to zero or say, well, they won't have recession, but the risks are falling. So, you know, all the all these activities with the Fed are happening because of inflation. So let's let's talk about that for a minute. Where did we end in 2022 and, and where do you think inflation is going to be by the end of 2023? Well, if you look at inflation, there's quite a few ways to measure that, right? So we have CPI, which is consumer inflation. That end of the year, and that's probably the most widely cited one, in that end of the year, 6.5%. So inflation prices rose for consumers 6.5% over the past year. Now, what the Fed actually uh, prefers to look at is called PCE. Uh, inflation. And the, the reason the Fed prefers that is because when they're looking at inflation, uh, they like to look at something that's a, a little bit more broad in general. So when we look at how in, inflation ended the year in PCE, uh, it's certainly, uh, well, we'll get that we don't have all the data yet. We still have November. November's was uh, 5.5%, but we're going to get the December uh, reading this week. And what's expected is that it'll show PCE at 5% for the entire year. So we got CPI, you know, six and a half, PCE probably around 5% for the year. That still is a lot higher than what the Fed mm-hmm. wants it to be, but much better 
than where it was earlier. Because if you think back to June of this year, what we saw, we saw CPI at 9.1%. And that had a lot of uh, people really, really worried. That the was a PCE scary number. Got up to, yeah. 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 PCE got up to 7%. Um, but we're still, we're at, we're at high levels this year. I mean, if you just look at the trend in inflation, it's clearly been going down. And, and there are certainly a few reasons to think that uh, inflation will continue to lo- get lower. For example, uh, supply chain problems, those dislocations that we've seen, they're pretty much gone by the wayside. We are seeing, while the initial jobless claims in the job market is still pretty tight, we do see more and more companies uh, starting to announce layoffs on a you know somewhat regular basis. I mean, we had Apple last week, we had Microsoft last week uh, announcing uh, um, layoffs now, or not Apple, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Google Alpha parent alphabet, excuse me. And when we look at that, you know, it certainly suggests that when, when we have these layoffs, we'll have less wage pressure in the future because there will be more people essentially looking for work. But when so, we think about, go ahead. That's one of those areas where, where bad news is actually good news in this situation. Exactly. Yeah. When we look at bad news being good news, uh, the bad news <clears throat> means that the economy might be slowing, but that also brings down inflation. And that also means that the Fed may stop their rate hikes relatively soon. And that's kind of what the market's pricing in. Well, and and uh, I mean, we're seeing, OK, we're, we're past peak inflation. I'm comfortable with that. And, and it seems like we're on the right track. And it seems like these numbers keep keep improving. Are we, I mean, are we going to continue to see inflation dropping? We saw in December, it was kind of interesting. Retail sales are down, industrial production down, real estate sales were down, bunch of uh, indexes were down. That would lead me to believe that, you know, we're we're probably going to see a continual uh, reduction in inflation. Is that what you see? And where where do you think, give me a number or, or are you uncomfortable? giving me a number. Oh, for I can give a number. Yeah, sure. But all I'll do, I'll give a number as what the economist averages, people who are trying yeah. to yeah. You know, look at this on a, on a very regular basis, very detailed mathematical models, or uh, maybe not so detailed in some instances. But what I'll say is the average economist sees inflation at the end of 2023, at least on a year over year basis at 2.9%. No kidding. Okay, okay. that's almost normal. It is almost yeah. normal, and that's the big reason that the, the market expects the Fed to slow down and, and maybe even possibly uh, pivot. But the thing that the, you know the Fed is worried about is that there are some other, you know some underlying inflationary pushes that may be masked by the drop yeah. in CPI, where if they get too loose in their monetary policy, you could see inflation spike back up. Yeah, we that's great news if that falls in in place. Okay, so so last question I've got for you. We're we're expecting a bunch of numbers coming out this week. The the one I'm most concerned about is fourth quarter GDP, gross domestic product numbers. Um, what are you expecting? So fourth quarter GDP should come in positive. Uh, right now the estimates around two point seven percent, and that's by the way that's the a fourth good quarter compared to the third quarter and then annualized or multiplied by four is a pretty right. simple way to think about that. Uh, now, 
the the reason for that is consumer spending, which represents basically 70 or so percent of the total economy, is supposed to be at about 2.8 percent. But when we look under the hood, uh, what's driving spending? We have goods spending and we have services spending. That's should that's going to be lifted by services spending because the goods spending uh, hasn't been that great uh, this uh, this quarter. Uh, basically, if you look at retail sales for the fourth quarter compared to the third quarter. They only increased by about half a percent. Uh, so when you look at that, you're looking in the other areas where consumers are spending their money, and it's more on the services side. And that's really going to lift up the economy and keep things going. Great perspective, as always, from Andy Stout, Chief Investment Officer of Allworth Financial. Here's the Allworth advice. Keep reminding yourself that your investments are for the long term because market volatility isn't going anywhere anytime soon. Coming up next, a corporate giant is staying right here in Cincinnati, and when Netflix says it's going to eliminate password sharing, that's coming up. You're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money, presented by Allworth Financial. I'm Steve Sprovec, along with Steve Ruby. If you can't listen to Simply Money every night, just subscribe to our daily podcast. You can listen the following morning during your commute at the gym. And if you think your friends could use some financial advice, tell them too. Search Simply Money on the iHeart app or wherever you find your podcasts. Straight ahead at 643, why missing the mark on your life expectancy could lead you into rough financial situations. Um, we've got a series of headlines, Steve, and, and you know, a bunch of things I, I, w- I want to touch base on. First, right right off the bat, right here in our hometown, GE headquarters, GE's going through some major changes. They're going through a split. I don't think a lot of people realize that they are actually splitting the company into three pieces. What's going on? Yeah, so in November of 2021, uh, GE announced it's, it's splitting into three companies. Like you said, it's GE Healthcare, Healthcare GE Verona, which is its energy business. Yeah. And GE Aerospace. And healthcare is already, they're already separated out. They're public. You can buy stock in GE Healthcare. Yeah, that's yeah. correct. And, yeah. and you know, until recently, we were unsure about whether GE Aerospace would be headquartered in Cincinnati, but we just got some good news. Yeah, they're going to they're gonna be right here. Uh, GE's got a really neat story of the, what used to be called GE Aviation, now GE Aeronautical. They moved into the Wright Aeronautical Piston facility over in Evendale in 1948. Wright Aeronautical, I mean, obviously Wright Brothers, they, they were a huge engine manufacturer back uh, back in the day. Um, GE Aerospace, has, they have something like 39,000 commercial motors, 26,000 military engines and out, out in the field. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is huge. And I think a lot of people here were, were a little bit nervous that they might be moving headquarters for that division up to Massachusetts. Right here in Evendale. I know, and it's wonderful. And I, I read something uh, that obviously we're, we're affected in many positive ways by having GE uh, Aerospace right here in Cincinnati. But, you know, I, I saw that the GE Foundation committed $5 million over five years to something yeah. called Next Engineers. This is uh, an educational program that, that aims to create um, global college readiness programs for students between 8th and 12th grades. Yeah. I mean, that's a, as the the father of a mechanical engineer. Yeah, uh, good field, tough field, but uh, we need lots of engineers. Sure. All right, so there's some people that are out looking for a job. Maybe they should become engineers. But Google uh, tech job cuts. We're we're seeing some serious job cuts in the tech sector. Yeah, I mean, I feel like every week we're we're sharing some news with our listeners about you know another company that's that's releasing uh, quite a few people. And right now it's uh, Alphabet, which is Google's parent company. Yeah. 
12,000 jobs. It joins Amazon, Facebook, Twitter, Microsoft. Uh, you know, tech companies, they were booming. They were booming during COVID Well, I think COVID they overhired, shutdowns. don't you? Exactly. I they mean, they were, they were picking up anybody they could, and, and now they're, they're okay, we've got, a, we've got a few extra people. Yeah, so when you think about it, looking at your 401k, if you're investing in NASDAQ funds and, and, and you know, early in, in COVID shutdowns, that was great yeah. for us. But now NASDAQ closed down 32.8% last year. All right, so so here's here's what everybody is waiting for. Yep, uh, the other shoe's going to drop. Netflix. I don't know anybody who shares passwords on Netflix or shares accounts. So you probably don't either. Um, he right. said it that way because he uses yeah. my Netflix password. No, I know, no, I know. <laughs> but I know <laughs> I won't even. I, I won't even go there because I'm sure mine has gotten around to you, family members. Let's yeah. just say. But Net Netflix is is aware of this, and they've been playing it, you know, loosey goosey with allowing that to happen. And, and they're starting to figure out, you know what? There's a lot of money we're leaving on the table, and they're going to crack down. And it looks like they're cracking down in April. Yeah, it's Greg Peters, the the CEO of, of Netflix. He says the goal is to nudge users to the right price <laughs> <Nudge>. points. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, what a, what a way to put it. So, you know, the the, the rumor here is that there's going to be between 3 and $4 uh, paid per shared account. So so they're clear. I mean, if you're, I don't even know what I pay, 15, 16 bucks a month for, for Netflix? Nothing, Steve. You use my password. <laughs> <laughs> but but I mean they're they're aware that this is going on massively and they're going to be happy if if you know they get an average of three or four bucks a pop so that tells me they're figuring everybody is sharing with at least three or four other users three or four other family members whatever the case is yeah the key here uh, Mr Greg Peters said that the the end result of increasing this or adding this three to four dollar expense should eventually lead to increased revenue yeah um, I think they're going to find out there's only one actual subscriber. <laughs> we have one Netflix yeah, user in the whole sure. world and everybody yeah, just exactly. uses the same password. Yeah, so that'll be a shock. Hey, um, in all seriousness, I, I mean, you know, I'm not a big follower of Tesla stock. Um, Elon Musk, I, I, I love the guy. I love what he's doing. And, and I know I, I'm one of the few that seems to, to feel that way lately. But uh, a lot of people are, are saying maybe the SEC should take a look at Elon Musk for when he sold a whole lot of shares of his Tesla stock. Yeah, right before he acknowledged publicly uh, certain weaknesses within the company, he actually sold $3.6 billion billion worth. Billion with a B. Billion dollars, $3.6 billion of Tesla shares. And, and, and the timing of, that, of those you know, stock sales it reads, leads to the crucial question of, did he know that the business had slowed right before he sold his shares? Well, you know, he, he's, he kind of runs it. He's kind of a micromanager. He's got some real smart people working for him. But, I mean, you and I both know there's something called insider trading. Exactly. And it's kind of illegal, like, like mm-hmm. very illegal. And if you run a company and, and you have a lot of shares in that company and you have material, non-public information, you know something that the average person doesn't know and you go ahead and trade based on that information, um, it could cause some problems. Yeah, and w- yeah, the SEC, of course, uh, has not uh, commented on this uh, stock sale. Well, yeah, and the question is, did he or didn't he? And and you know, I it it just seems very dubious that uh, the the I don't believe in coincidences that that the sale and I know he sold a lot to buy Twitter and all yeah, that yeah. kind of stuff, but the sale occurred right before some relatively bad news came out. Um, I think he's going to have some explaining to do. We'll, we'll see about that. Seems like there's a lot of bad news surrounding him lately. Yeah. All right. J- jumping a little bit. FTX. I, I mean, the the you know bankrupt 
Sam Bankman Freed Company that that you know turned out to be a, a well missing a couple of billion dollars. That's all um, in cryptocurrency uh, exchanges. Um, the guy who runs it was the same guy who was tasked with unraveling the Enron scandal and getting people back their money. He's doing the same with FTX. And, and you know, there's some good news, bad news. The bad news is he's still looking for money. Don't know if he'll recover it. But the good news is he he seems to be finding that there's some something worthwhile with that company. Yeah, I mean, it boils down to the fact that customers have really praised that company's technology yeah. and, and, you know, that suggests that there could be value in, in rebooting the platform. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, they, they've got some technology. I, I wouldn't, I, I can't believe anybody would want to invest after everything that they've gone through using that for their cryptocurrency exchange. But we'll see. He, he found some interesting things that may be worthwhile bringing back from the dead. Here, here's the all worth advice. They, these headlines show that having too much money in any one particular company can lead to financial disasters. So too much can change from day to day. Stay diversified. Uh, Want to pay less in taxes? Who doesn't? We've got some tips coming up next. You're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money presented by Allworth Financial. I'm Steve Sprovac along with Steve Ruby. They are the people nobody likes. We're talking about those folks from the IRS. And, you know, two certainties in life, death and taxes. Well, paying taxes is inevitable, but there are some legal ways to keep some of that money for yourself in 2023. Let's talk about it. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the times it depends on the vehicle that you're saving in. So specifically, first thing to talk about would be your, your individual investment account, your the brokerage account. type of account, account exactly. how it's registered. That's, yeah. that's correct. So, you know, an individual bro- brokerage account, unlike qualified retirement accounts like 401ks or IRAs, these don't come with stipulations or, or rules about how and when you can access your funds. Yeah, I I like to just make it real simple and say, yeah, you know what? You should have about three buckets to put your money in over the course of your life. One is the emergency fund. I mean, that's crystal clear. That's yeah. the zero risk money. Just put it in savings and use it for emergencies, getting laid off, um, need a new car, whatever the case happens to be. Uh, the next bucket is the long-term retirement money, 401ks and IRAs. That's the money that, okay, this is going to be here for a good long time. We need to make sure this money is around down the road. Um, But there's penalties on that money if you need to access it early. And that's where the good old-fashioned brokerage account, just, you know, if you're married, uh, a joint account. If you're not married or or even if you're married and you just want to have it just in your name, the individual account, you can invest in stocks, bonds, mutual funds, you name it. But the whole point is there's no tax advantage, but that's why you can grab that money when you want for whatever reason. Well, folks that I work with, I, I make it clear that I, I lead with making the, the most tax efficient decision as far as where your next dollar should go. So your, your 401k, your IRA, it's deductible contributions, whereas your, your brokerage account is not. Now, there are options when you're selling and buying securities in a brokerage account where you can you know use the losses to offset gains and even, you know, yeah, take three thousand dollars losses against regular income. So there's some benefits there, um, but as as Steve Steve said, it is a good place for intermediate uh, cash positions because you are investing with those dollars. Well, let's be serious. If there's no tax advantage, first of all, the bad news is you're going to pay taxes as you earn them, so, so or as you uh, make profits. So if you buy something in a joint investment account in a joint brokerage account and sell it at a profit. 
you're going to pay tax on that profit. Yes. That's why you have full access to it anytime you want. But but you're only going to pay tax on the profit, which after last year, not a lot of that going around. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you're looking to pull some money out to, to pay for some expenses, even, even if you're retired, you might want to take a look at your taxable investment account and, and go into each of your positions and see, okay, is this one up? Am I going to have to pay tax on it? All right, let, let's say you do have to pay tax. If you've held it longer than a year, it's a capital gain rates, and and those those tax rates are a little bit lower than if you earn that money on a job. Then your regular income tax is correct. Exactly. You know, next thing to talk about would be avoiding taxes entirely, which is your Roth IRA. I love the Roth IRA investment. Oh, yeah. You put the money in, you invest with it, and it grows tax-free. There's no taxes paid on the earnings. As long as you stick to a couple of rules, first, withdrawals have to happen after the age of 59 and a half, mm-hmm. and the Roth account has to have been open for at least five years. Yeah, yeah, but there's one catch. If you make too much money, you may not be able to put money in a Roth IRA. That's why I want to talk about Roth 401ks. Not every company offers this as a feature of their 401k, but more and more are doing it. So you might want to talk to HR because if you have a Roth option in your 401k plan, uh, you do not have the income limits that you have if you are opening up a Roth IRA. doesn't matter how much money you make, you can put money in a Roth 401k. It's a great feature. Yeah, you mentioned something important there, Steve, and that's income limits. If you yeah. earn too much, then you're not able to actually put money into a, a Roth IRA. Married filing jointly if you're above 228. I mean, these income limits are pretty They're darn high. high. They're high, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. above 228,000. You're not able but to. But I've seen some single people get hung up on this because, you know, they make a good dollar. They're towards the end of their career and they get a year end bonus. And that, that could put you over the limit if you're single. Yeah, and then you have your 401k. If your employer allows it, then you do have the ability to contribute Roth still. Yeah, yeah, because there are no income limits on a Roth 401k. All right, a little bit of a tax break that um, I just talked to my nephew uh, last week. He was selling his uh, his house in South Carolina, took a job in Alabama, and um, he was debating whether or not to um, rent it out. You know, does he want to go through the hassle? Does he want to just sell it? And I, I asked him how long has he lived there, and he said, well, just about two years. And about. I, I, yeah, and I, I said, well, you might want to wait for a full two years because – there is a big tax break after two years on your house. Yeah, is he is he single or married? He's single. Okay, so yep. single filer, it would be up to $250,000 of, of gains on the sale of that property that is really just tax-free, as long as you've lived in that property for, for two years or more. Yeah, two years out of the last five, out I, of I the, think is the way they, they phrase it. Hey, as, as with all things, check with your tax advisor. We're not tax advisors. We're just talking general uh, tax uh, information here. But that's a, that's a big deal because, you know, people with the market the way it's been in real estate the last couple of years, you know, you might be thinking, wow, you know, if I sell it, I, I don't want to pay all that in tax. Well, if you live there more than two years, you may be able, uh, if you're single, um, $250,000 tax-free on the gain. If you're married filing jointly, $500,000. That's that's a big, big number. Okay. Um, You're retired and you're thinking of moving to a lower tax state. I I hear this all the time. Florida seems to be the, the state most often in the conversation. Oh, yeah, it's warm, too. So it has that benefit. Lots <laughs> right, of beaches. Right now it's looking real good. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know, right? It's a, lot, a lot of snow around uh, this time of year. So, you know, talking about Florida, I, Steve, I've actually worked with folks, specifically pilots. So you mentioned retired. Now, this isn't as common, but, you know, yeah. pilots have pretty darn good income. And, and I have clients that have actually moved to Florida 
and commuted to save money on state taxes. Now, that's not that common, um, but when you're talking about retiring, that is one of the huge benefits of relocating besides uh, beautiful weather. You're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC. I'm Steve Sprovec along with Steve Ruby, and we're, we're talking about just general tax information where maybe we can save you a couple of bucks on what you pay Uncle Sam. Okay, so we've talked about Roths. We've talked about uh, uh, saving money when you sell your house, um, where you want to retire. What, what else can we do uh, to, to save a little bit of money? I know health savings accounts are one of your favorites. Yeah, this is one that Amy and I lean heavily on as far as, you know, conversations are concerned because it's the only investment vehicle that is triple taxed advantage. What's that mean? So what that means is when you contribute to a health savings account, it is a deductible contribution. When you take the money out for qualified non-reimbursed medical expenses, tax-free distribution. When you invest with the dollars in the account, tax-free earnings, just like your Roth IRA. Uh, except one big catch on them, you have to have a high deductible yes. health insurance plan. And also, if you're collecting Medicare, you can't do HSAs anymore. Once you hit 65, that's done. Here's the Allworth advice. Every dollar you can keep for yourself legally is a dollar you can use for your future instead of handing it over to the tax man. How long do you think you'll live? Why the answer to that question is so important. That's coming up next. You're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money, presented by Allworth Financial. I'm Steve Sprovac, along with Steve Ruby. Do you have a financial question you'd like for us to answer? Well, there's a red button you can click on if you're listening to the show on the iHeart app. Just record your question. It comes right to us. We do listen to those. Straight ahead, we'll tell you what your rights are if you get bumped from a flight. You know, Steve, as financial advisors, I I, I cringe when a healthy client no medical issues that I'm aware of walks in and, and they say, uh, I don't know why you run your plan so so long. I'm not going to live to be in my 90s. Um, cut this off at 75 or 80. That bothers me. And it doesn't, you know, people just don't seem to have a real good handle on what life expectancy is. Yeah, I mean, it bothers me to no end as well because, you know, ideally we build financial plans that shows that a client's money is going to live longer than they do. Yeah, what if they have the bad luck to, to live a good long life? Uh, yeah, you know? worst exactly. case scenario, they live to 104, you run out of money when you're you're 79, yeah. that's no yeah. fun. There, there was a new study that came out that shows that most Americans don't know how long they expect to live. This is no surprise to Steve and I because we're having these conversations daily. Um, but it's alarming to researchers that that show a lack of longevity literacy and, and what that could mean to many who believe that they're they're prepared to retire or prepared for retirement but but might run out of money in the in their golden years. I, i'm I'm thinking of one individual in particular, and I've known this guy for thirty years and and I, I remember when I first started talking to him and did his plan, he he said, "You don't need to run this out to we we run plans generally to ninety two for men and ninety four for women, yeah, you know because there's a about twenty five percent chance that they will hit those ages, and that's good enough for me and, and he told me I was crazy and he's going to spend more money, he's going to enjoy life, and I well, you know, I'm not sure this money's going to last much longer than your mid eighties or or so and okay, he's not there yet, but you know what? He's looking pretty good in his late 70s, and, and you know that that's the type of person, why would you assume you're not going to live that long if, you know, and spend your money accordingly if there's a chance that you might make it? Have you talked about where he's going to work? Uh, yeah, well, that's the problem. It really exactly. is. Yeah. Yeah, it's a sad conversation yeah. that, that happens uh, from time to time. You know, what I like to ask folks that I work with is, who is the oldest person you have ever known? Yeah. 
And and that can be a little bit eye-opening because you think about your, your network, your family, your friends, and oftentimes they're going to know somebody that's lived till their 90s. And 25% chance that, you know, either a man or a woman in, in a relationship does live to 92 and 94. Yeah, and what, what's interesting, in the, in this survey, it, I, I mean, women definitely had a better handle on what their life expectancy is. I, you know, they, they were pretty darn close. Um, more than half knew, okay, yeah, it's probably going to be in my mid-late uh, 80s or so. Um, the actual answer is men generally live to 82, women till 85. But that's the median. You know, half are going to be long uh, older than that and half, half younger than that when they pass. Um, the problem with women being accurate, though, is that there's, uh, according to the survey, a much lower percentage uh, of women that are financially literate. So they know how long they're going to live, but they don't know how to handle money to last them that long. That's a problem. Yeah. You know, usually one person in, in, in the financial planning relationship is more engaged than the other between the man and the woman. That's why it's so darn important. A lot important. of times it's the guy. Yeah, you, it you is. Know? And, and I think we're seeing that change, you know, in, in, you know, 30 years ago, I, I think a large majority of men handled the finances and, and that's changing as roles change in, in families, which is, I think, a good sign. But um, still, you, you see a disparity. Yeah, I spend a lot of time and, and effort and energy making sure that both people in a relationship are, are part of the financial plan because they they need to know what's going to happen, especially if a one, woman tends to live longer than a man. Yeah. Uh, worst case scenario I ever saw is that the husband took care of everything, bills, investments, you name it, he did it, uh, and then he got Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't that old either. And, and wife called me up, gave me the news, and, and she was crying. And, and I said, come on in, just just bring – because he, he, he went so quick that she literally didn't know what bills were due, didn't know what he was doing with the money, where the accounts were. I, I mean, this this is rough. And, and she, you know, she brought in the proverbial shoebox. And yeah. I walked through it all with her. And, you know, I haven't done a plan for them. I was able to, okay, you've got money here. You've got accounts here. You're using this person for a lawyer. And, you know, I was able to sort through all of that. I can't imagine what would happen if she didn't have someone, a financial planner, somebody that knew where most of the this stuff was. And, and that's the root cause of, of the issue is, num- number one, you know, I think it's a good idea to have a plan done by someone. But number two, and most importantly, um, understand each person's role and how your finances are, where they're at, and discuss it. Communication is so important on this. Yeah, it absolutely is. I agree with that. And it's a big part about what I work with with the folks I'm with. You're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC. I'm Steve Sprovac along with Steve Ruby, and we're talking about life expectancies and how to plan your finances around your life expectancy. Uh, expectancy. There's some key ages. Um, one of them is when you turn 50, okay, you can start putting a little bit more money away through a catch-up provision. Yeah, these are the catch-up contributions. The year you turn 50, you're able to put for the year 2023 an additional $7,500 in your 401k, additional $1,000 into your IRAs. Uh, another one is 59 and a half. You're able to take penalty-free withdrawals from IRAs and 401ks at that point. If I, you take distributions before then, 10% early withdrawal penalty. Well, yeah, there's a little bit of a uh, uh, an exception. There are exceptions. In your 401k, if it's a year that you were uh, laid off or, or whatnot. Rule of 55. Yeah, is, leave that between you and your tax advisor. Yeah. I actually know people who have 59 and a half parties. <laughs> I, which to me is saying you're you're paying way too much attention to pulling that money out at your first opportunity. I know. Ideally, this isn't money that actually leaves a retirement account, no. so you need to generate no. income from it when you're officially retired. But still, good to know if you need something, the penalty 
goes away at 59 and a half in, and, in all situations. And most people know, okay, um, you can start drawing Social Security as, as early as 62, but at, at a heavily discounted amount, and you're locked into that lower amount for the rest of your life if you draw it at 62. And I think some people get confused about full retirement age which is for most people 67. Yes, 67 um, that, at this yeah, point. that's uh, the biggest difference there is yeah, there's an increase in benefit for social security from 62 to 67. 67 is important because that's when you can draw social security and if you want to go back to work or continue working, you can make as much money as you want. There are no income in, income limitations after full retirement age. Yeah, the the conversation about social security is is obviously a very complex one, so looking at your financial plan to help you make education decisions is very important, but it, it's key to know that if you collected 62, it's 30% less than if you waited till yeah. full retirement age. It's a big cut. So, so this is one of those areas where guaranteed returns is part of the conversation. Same thing with between full retirement age and 70, it's about 8% more per year. And also, if you haven't heard, uh, Congress just passed a law, uh, required minimum distribution age was just increased to 73. Now, that doesn't help you if you've already been drawing because of required minimum distribution rules, but if you are not 73 yet, um, it has been increased as of January 1st to age 73 for required minimum distributions from your IRAs and 401ks. Here's the all-worth advice. Don't shortchange how long you may live. The last thing you want to do is outlive your money. Coming up next, how to overcome travel troubles that aren't your fault. You're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money, presented by Allworth Financial. I'm Steve Sprovec, along with Steve Ruby. You know, when I was younger, and that was a long time ago, Steve, as you know, (laughs) flying was a pretty cool experience. I mean, people actually got dressed up. There was something called legroom, which pretty much is is falling by the wayside. And, you know, if you followed what happened with Frontier over Thanksgiving and Christmas, it's become an absolute hot mess. And, And, you know, we're looking at we've got to reverse this industry. We've got to make an industry-wide improvement because some of these airlines are just causing tons of frustrations. Yeah, Wall Street Journal's annual airline scorecard found that airlines have been bumping flyers more often than in previous years. Happened to me, yeah. Yeah, and during the comparable pre-pandemic period, you know, before then, this happens when, when what, what it means to be bumped is when, when people are scheduled to fly and, and there are not enough available seats. Well, airlines routinely sell more tickets than they have seats, which to me is kind of crazy, but they know that there's a certain percentage of people that change their plans or just don't show up, and they're trying to get every last seat filled to get every ounce of profit out of that flight, and and sometimes it just doesn't work out. Yeah, I I couldn't imagine the frustration. You know, when I fly, my my wife already tenses up quite a bit, so if we were (laughs) to be bumped, we would end up in one of those videos that you see about people freaking out at airports, I think. Pop quiz, pop quiz. What is it? Do you know who the first discount airline was? No, I was going to say Frontier, but that can't no, be. No, no, this is way yeah, back be. before that. There was deregulation in the early 80s. and Up until then, whoever you flew, it was the same fare. I, I mean, it was regulated. Mm-hmm. And once they, they deregulated, it allowed the first discount airline to come in, which, as far as I know, was People Express. And my the reason I know it, my wife worked for People Express. You know what else they did is they charged separately, this was totally new, for bags. They charged $2 a bag. They started that trend, huh? They started at 2 bucks. 
Two bucks a bag. Can you I'm not imagine? sure I like where this is gone. No. From it, two bucks to 50 per oh, bag yeah. and beyond. What, and if you wait until you get to the, the airport, some some places will charge you 75 bucks. I remember seeing her at the airport explaining to somebody from, this was in New York, uh, what do you mean? You're not going to put my bag on the plane unless I give you two extra bucks? That's that's crazy. You know? Yeah, it really is something. Now, d- d- just to put it out there, the airlines that perform the worst by far as far as uh, bumping is concerned is uh, front- Frontier Airlines, yeah. Southwest finished second to last in Wall Street Journal rankings. Yeah, they've gotten hammered, and, and yeah, we need to get this fixed because getting bumped, not a fun experience. Thanks for listening. Tune in tomorrow. We'll talk to you about the pros and cons of target date funds. You've been listening to Simply Money on 55KRC, the talk station.